Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. The discipline to maintain discipline. The message from David Kelly of JP Morgan Asset Management, the chief global strategist. He joins us now. David, build on that. What do you mean by that? Well, I think that we we're in a recovery, uh, but this recovery is about to slow down. I mean, the the sound that you hear outside is screeching brakes uh, because this V-shaped recovery is going to slow a lot in the fourth quarter and and um, into early next year. And I think it's important not to just you know to pile into momentum stocks. We've seen we've seen you know the stock market do wonderfully well this year, but there are parts of the stock market which are frankly done too well given the amount of uncertainty out there and given the fact that down the road we are looking at higher taxes and higher interest rates. So I think it's very important for investors at this stage to be disciplined, realize that just because we've seen some good economic numbers because the market has you know seemed to be okay here, you know, don't don't take your eye off the ball. Recognize that we've still got a, a long way to go before this pandemic is really over. Within it is the idea of what the return will be. All the actual assumptions, David Kelly, has been we're supposed to invest for single-digit return. Nobody believes that that's on these high flyers. Do we go back to a single-digit world? We have to eventually because in the end it's about nominal GDP growth. And what's happened for a long time, actually for decades now, is we've seen the value of financial assets um, in the U.S., rise much faster than overall nominal GDP. But ultimately, it's about the growth in goods and services produced by the U.S. economy. And uh, so there is going to be some correction along the way here. Uh, and there are, and we are going to see a return to single-digit returns. And so it's very important for people, you know, look at valuations carefully because the things that are most overvalued are the things that are going to get hurt the worst when there is a a, more significant correction. Well, David, when you talk about how we could see a correction in what? In tech stocks, because right now we're seeing an ongoing performance, at least for today, a return to the underperformance in small caps, in financials, and yeah. tech is what's recovering. Well, yeah, and, and, and because this market is very momentum driven. I mean, I, th- I think this year has been so difficult for you know, fundamental <laughs> analytics. I mean, how do you figure out you know, wh- what these companies are really worth and the sort of world we're looking at post-pandemic? So I think investors are just jumping into the momentum trade here. Uh, but when we get through this, when we have a more normal economy, as that begins to shape, you know, shape out, and we we have a, a sense of it in 2021 and 2022, I do think that value stocks should do better than growth. Growth is very expensive relative to value. You know, it's most expensive it's been since the tech bubble. I also think that international ought to do better than the U.S. A very similar story. Both EM and developed country international are cheap relative to the U.S. So you, I think you need to think about the boring middle of the market here and, and try not to be too enticed or enamored of of, uh, um, high-tech, large-cap, mega-cap growth stocks. Now, David, fold your economics in here. Kasman and Feroli, your economists, make very clear they have a very cautious view out. Is that cautious view folded into fourth quarter, or is that a cautious view for next year? It should be in the fourth quarter if we're looking at quarterly GDP. We saw GDP fall by 32% in the second quarter. We think it could rise by as much as 30% in the third annualized, but then only rise by about 3% annualized in the fourth. So there's a very sharp deceleration in growth. And you're gonna see that in jobs. I mean, if you look sequentially, okay, we saw we added 1.4 million jobs last month, that's good. 
but we think that job growth will now decelerate to about less than a million per month, which sounds okay, except we're still 11 million jobs short of where we were in February. So again, a deceleration there. So I think in the monthly numbers, it's upon us. In the quarterly numbers, we're going to have to wait for the fourth quarter to see that deceleration. What's the run rate on nominal GDP that you then fold into your forecasting of the equity markets? Um, well, it's it's hard to talk about a run rate in either 2020 or 2021. Agreed. When you get, uh, but once you get into 2022, uh, we're looking at something in the order of four to five percent once we get back to close to full employment. But you're, you're going to be, you know, we'll have to bring that unemployment rate rate down for for a while here. But we, you know, we've got another problem, which is that we've got a, a demographic crash going on right now, which is also going to take something out of GDP growth when this pandemic <clears> is over. David, what do you make of what's happening in Washington at the moment? Uh, it's all politics. I mean, I, I think that they, I, I, I was hoping we'd see uh, some sort of new support package, a phase four deal before the conventions, because honestly, there are a lot of unemployed people in this country who need that. A lot of people are going to suffer through this winter. But nobody wants to make a deal at this stage, it seems to me, before the election. So hopefully after the election, however it goes in that lame duck session of Congress, We'll have something to support people who just can't get back to work until the pandemic is tamed. And hopefully we'll tame the pandemic in 2021. But for right now, it's just uh, partisan posturing because everybody's focused on the election. David, is no deal or a very skinny deal priced into the market currently? I think it probably is. And remember, we're talking about eight weeks. I mean, we're talking about that or perhaps 10 weeks. But once the election is over, I think there is a majority probably in Congress for some sort of skinny deal. Because after all, on things like state and local government, you can come back in January with a new Congress. And if, you know, if, if uh, you know, depending on how that, that shapes out, you could you could do something then. So you, you just need to do something about the unemployment support. You need to do something to try and help these small businesses. Yeah. Um, but it's, uh, you don't need to spend a fortune right now because you can always come back next January and do something bigger. David, just to comment on the language that we're using at the moment, a skinny deal is now something between 500 and $700 billion down in Washington. What yeah. are your thoughts on that? Uh, there are no fiscal hawks left. There are no monetary hawks left either. I mean, the hawks have all left Washington, which is uh, a little worrying. Uh, we do need to do this right now, but I am very concerned that as the economy <clears throat> recovers, particularly if we get a good vaccine and it begins to you know, move forward fast later next year, we've got a lot of government debt. And this is going to be a time when we need to be really disciplined in terms of policy uh, just to maintain the credibility of, uh, you know, of our, you know, of Treasury bonds and credibility of the currency. So we're, we're going to need to have some discipline down the road. But I, you know, I have no problem with spending money right now because there are a lot of people who are really in some distress and you're not going to create inflation uh, in the middle of, a, of an economy with uh, you know, almost 10% unemployment. David, great to catch up. As always, stay well. Send our regards to the team. David Kelly there of JP Morgan Asset Management. Let's stagger to our guest if we can. Omar Aguilar Schwab, Chief Investment Officer. I'm asked, not there anymore. Let me tell you. Omar hung up and goes, you know, I can't, I can't come on after Gwyneth Paltrow. Good morning on Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg Television. Thrilled you're with us on our simulcast. And Mr. Aguilar will give us some brilliance right now. What is the character of this pullback? You have the advantage of Kathy and Lizanne to give you perspective as well. What is the nature of the pullback we've seen, Omar? Well, good morning, Tom. Definitely is that out of my range of understanding a lot of the discussion regarding celebrities. But <laughs> I can tell you, though, that um, 
a big part of what the market is, is going through now is something that in a way it was shouldn't be coming as a surprise as we uh, come out of the summer and such an amazing run in the market we clearly uh, speculated what would could be the fall look like and if you actually see all the sources of uncertainty we had and the gap between the market and the economy getting bigger mm -hmm. and bigger it, that all of a sudden created that the environment for a you know potential volatility and what we are observing right here you put it into the context of the size of the rally that we have seen since april we're just seeing volatility the size of the correction even though in the nasdaq <clears throat> has significant is still you know very small relative to the right. size of of the bull market we saw earlier in the year omar a really serious question and i don't want you to speak for the executives of schwab and mr schwab as well he can do that for himself schwab and others in retail electronic brokerage have been pinatas about the sizable retail trading we're seeing do you buy that idea that there's something ill about all that retail trading well, you know, the, 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 our job at Schwab is always to guide retail investors to find their best way to trade. And in many cases to find, you know, the opportunities they find in the market so that they can use their capital in the wise way. Of course, there's a lot of, you know, players in the market. There's a lot of activity in the market and the size of the retail trading, especially the high frequency retail trading has had an impact in the market, no question about it. Now, I think a big part of the discussion of what we do at investment management part of Schwab, it also involves you know, trying to guide them into the behavioral aspects of the market. If you actually see a lot of the retail activity, it usually tends to be very short-term in age nature, and in many cases tends to be fairly related to behavioral economics. Um, so we do do a lot of research and we provide a lot of advice to our retail clients to try to guide them to understand what is really the motivation behind a lot of the trading. Is it really more for a short-term trade? Yeah. Is it really more consistent with their investment objectives? Well, Omar, you mentioned two things there. One on size, the volume clearly increased over the last six months on the retail side. The other on the character of the trading. Can you talk a little bit more about that, whether you've seen a shift to more short term than perhaps it was 12 months ago, whether you've seen a shift from just the underlying stock to more options activity, which is a big discussion in the last week or so. Can you give us some color, some clarity there, Omar? Well, you know, the the uh, I think the market environment has actually put you know clients and in general in investors in like two two camps, and you can actually very clearly see through the activity that we see in the market. On one hand, we have what is called in behavioral finance the overconfident crowd, the overconfident crowd that is a cognitive bias that basically feels that clearly short-term trading it is the place to go, mostly because central banks provide that extra liquidity and backstop for the market to continue to follow that trade. You can actually see that more in options. You can see that more in just the momentum trade. You can actually see and you can obviously think about all the different participants that are trading on, on and off regarding those short-term you know, uh, components. On the other hand, and we see that more and more often, we actually see more of the other side of the trade, which is some of those you know, investors that tend to be more 
risk averse, where loss aversion, which is more of an emotional bias in behavioral economics, that tend to actually drive more on trying to be more safe and try to put more cash on the sidelines and looking for protection. So when you think about options, it's, it's both ways. It basically allows for you to put money to work in the market to try to put you know your views, but also to try to seek protection. So we actually see you know basically a bifurcation in terms of the the way that activity goes. One is more short-term in nature, the other one tends to be more long-term in nature. So does this all balance itself out and keep the rotation into cyclicals intact despite the tech sell-off, or are we going to be basically be set back, and is tech going to regain the helm, and everything else going to kind of limp along for a while? Well, you know, I, I've, I've always, you know, described this in just the theory of economics that basically say when you look at history of recessions, Normally, the market takes off before the recession is finally completed. Um, but in one thing that has been common in all the prior recessions is that the source of the recession gets resolved before you start seeing the rotation from growth to value. Uh, even though the market can continue to go up, you actually see the rotation you know, into value from growth. And that's very typical of most of the recessions. What we, what is unique about this one is that this looks more as a recession that comes from a national disaster more than an economic you know driven you know recession and the reality though is that the majority of the natural disaster recessions they are actually solved because the natural disaster is gone in this particular one we have not resolved the source of the recession we're still trying to figure it out and therefore it's going to be very hard Lisa to basically think about a serious rotation until we actually have or get to the source of that you know solution for the recession source. Um, I'm tight on time just a quick one from me <clears throat> clearly there's many people that still haven't gone back to the office have you got any basic assumptions on what happens to volume with guys like yourself right now once people start going back to the office again? Well, it's actually quite interesting, uh, you know, John, because what we actually think is that there is a significant amount of people that are actually more comfortable trading from home. And in fact, a lot of the activity in terms of day trading tends to be more uh, often of people that are now have more time to actually be trading at home. So we, we don't necessarily anticipate to see any significant change in terms of how the different um, you know, activity within trading will actually happen. Of course, it's all speculation. You know, when we think about the bigger players, people obviously like on the asset management side, you know, we obviously all are working from home and therefore that is not going to make any difference in terms of how we operate. Now, in terms of retail clients and in terms of others, you know, clearly, you know, the, the advantage that they have in terms of their technology that is provided by different you know, providers is there. So it is, it is unclear to me that there will be a significant change in the volume that we see. And we see a significant pickup in volume yeah. already. Omar, great to catch up. As always, I'm Aguila from Schwab. Thank you. Right now in oil, we've really ignored this, and it's been my fault. And Rita Sen uh, joins us with Energy Aspects, terrific microeconomic analysis of what's going on in oil, but also the broader picture as well. How do you respond, Amrita, to the certitude of the pundits that this is just a bet on weaker global demand, a weaker global economy? Do you buy it? Well, Tom, I'd say that we really never uh, <laughs> were talking about a strong global economy, right? I think, if anything, uh, the price of oil is finally catching up with fundamentals. We talked about it not that long ago, uh, the contango in the market, so the futures price uh, 
was telling us that you know prices in the future will be higher, um, and that was already showing the contango had widened. It was showing the physical market was oversupplied when OPEC had started to ease their cuts and U.S. production was coming back a little bit. Um, but the price didn't move, and that was to do with the fact that you know Feds kept the interest rates so low, so so much money around, and the the dollar was extremely weak. Finally, those factors changed, and that's essentially what dragged prices lower. This was long overdue. Um, and I think what this should help is accelerate some of those inventory drawdowns, which we're already seeing, but it should get better, bigger. Um, and that's the only way we will rebalance this market. Well, okay, I'm going to draw the ire of some of my co-hosts, perhaps, but trying to come up with a narrative to understand whether the moves in the equity market have been consistent with what we're seeing in oil. Oil seemed to be moving somewhat independently of the stock sell-off that we saw, the NASDAQ sell-off in particular, over the past three sessions, particularly having to do with OPEC cutting prices and people not increasing their orders all that much. Do you find the price action in oil, the weak demand in oil, to be consistent with the large, to the large degree, the recovery in equity prices. I would say that what is the problematic thing with oil, of course, right now, the headwinds really, is that demand is recovering, like you say, I think, and you can see that in the equity market, but also whether it be home sales data and just generally even, you know, broader macro data in China, other parts of the world, recovering for sure. But it's transportation that's the weakness, right? And unless and until there's a vaccine, it is going to be hard to get people moving in the same way. Yes, traffic data is picking up, but, you know, flying jet fuel demand remains at record lows still. And that is the issue over here. And that's why I think it is correct for oil to diverge from equities broadly. But once you have run down the inventories and once you do get the demand recovery, which, by the way, is a good year, if not two away, then things will probably correlate a lot better. This is crucial, this idea that perhaps the economy can recover without people flying around and traveling around to the degree that they did in the past. How low could oil prices go, in your view? I, I, I don't think that when we're talking about the recovery in demand, we're not saying that the recovery is going to go take us back to pre-COVID levels, right? We should be very clear on that. We are recovering, but it's just that unless and until that last bit, which is going to be very oil-intensive, recovers, uh, we're really not going to be able to go back to 2019 levels. I don't think there's much more than a $2 you know, left in the corrections. We, it's been very, very violent. I think at around $35, we should find a floor. I think U.S. production, the recovery we were seeing, very gradual. That's going to go back down again. Um, and I think as a result of that, you will probably start to see more pressure generally um, on, on those supplies, which again helps in the rebalancing. Is this pullback advantageous for Saudi Arabia to provide new discipline to OPEC plus? I think it's not going to do them any harm, uh, especially given they've been trying to get compliance up. And to be honest, uh, Iraq and Nigerian compliance has been picking up. It's been more of the other GCC countries, some of them that their compliance has been slipping off late. But yes, I think that's very much the focus. And while Saudi Arabia would, of course, like prices to be around $40, they all have very high budgetary requirements. I think this does play to their advantage in the short term. What do you see next then? Delisa's point, I mean, on the date calendar here, what does oil do next? 
I think for now it has to consolidate, and unfortunately it's going to be pretty boring uh, because unless and until the billion barrels we've built gets kind of absorbed, um, it's really not going to get exciting and, and prices can't really move higher. I think the next big thing has to really come from the winter demand side. So, you know, that's what I think a lot of people are focusing on because the macro picture is gradually improving, right? But that's very gradual. There are risks around the second wave and second lockdowns around the world. So it's really going to be about the winter demand next. Amrita, great to catch thank up with you, you this morning. Amrita Sen of Energy Aspects, thank you. This is a conversation of the day within this election season with our question over what the wealthy, the haves, are doing with their money. Providing leadership on this, including his wonderful new book, is David Rubenstein, of course, of the Carlyle Group, in his peer-to-peer conversations. One of them has been with Reed Hastings. David, I want to cut to the chase. Mark Benioff of Salesforce, that Dow component, in a recent conversation with Bloomberg, was scathing about the, the lack of philanthropy, the clumsiness of the new rich of California, the new rich of technology. Reed Hastings seems to be providing real leadership here. Is his gift to black universities, is that enough to be a game changer to teach the younger crew how to give away the millions? Well, it was a $120 million gift, and it got a lot of attention, as it should have gotten. Uh, when I asked him about it, he said he's actually made very other large gifts. Actually, some are larger, but they just haven't been publicized. So I think he will have an impact. But I think Mark makes a good point. You have people that are now worth tens and 20s and 30s of billions of dollars, and you wonder what they're going to do with all that money uh, just piling it up. Well, what do you do with it? I mean, this is something you with your success have faced. And, you know, full disclosure, folks, Mr. Bloomberg, the founder of Bloomberg LP and this radio and TV property, has faced the same conundrum. Why is it so hard for some, and particularly these young technology types, to give money away? Well, typically throughout the history of the world, people tended to give away money towards the end of their life and they would live at the 60s, 70s, 80s. Now a lot of people making money in their 20s, 30s, and 40s and they haven't really expected to make this much money, and it just takes a while for them to give it away, I guess. But hopefully they will do some things. A number of these people have signed the giving pledge, as Mike Bloomberg has and as I have, but I think it will take a while because the amount of money that people accumulated quickly is just unbelievable. For example, the founder of Tesla, he now has a net worth of, let's say, $70 billion or $100 billion. Uh, He made it so quickly, it just takes a while to give it away and figure out what you want to do with it. But more philanthropy should be done, for sure, by all the wealthy people that now have it money. So, David, there are those who are looking to give away money, and then there are other people who are counting on continuing to work until uh, they are very old because they need to support themselves. For those individuals, uh, and speaking to your interview with Reed Hastings, can they expect to go back to the office? Can you tell us what Netflix's CEO had to say about that? Um, Well, I think uh, Reed Hastings would like people to come back to the office, but they want to make certain that it's safe and so forth. He's been working remotely and actually from, uh, uh, you know, his house in in California. Uh, Many CEOs like Reed Hastings recognize that people are not coming back to work really until there's a vaccine, until there's there's safe uh, public transportation and until there's a lot of child care for for people who have young children. So I think it's gonna take a while. I think you probably aren't gonna see people back to work in full measure for another six to nine months. 
So he didn't ask you whether you have a Netflix subscription, and we've learned some private information about that, David, which you can or cannot share on this program. It's just us. Uh, but I do uh, want to hear what he expects going forward. Was this a blip giving him a boon during this work-from-home era, or does he see the success uh, parlayed into a longer-term establishment of streaming as the entertainment of choice? Well, when he started Netflix, if people may remember, he basically had a system where you you rented a D DVD and he mailed it to you overnight, and you mailed it back to him. And then he eventually got into the streaming business ahead of everybody else and caught the rest of Hollywood by a uh, flat footed. He built the biggest streaming business now with a market value of about $223 billion. And at one point he wanted to sell the company for $50 million to then the biggest company doing this blockbuster. And they said, no, they didn't want to pay $50 million for it. That's the best thing that ever happened to him financially. <laughs> David, how do you parse the Netflixes and how did Mr. Hastings speak about the idea of spending, 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 spending and not really generating profits? How do you partition companies that clearly make an income statement profit in those where it's a not, not smoke and mirrors, but it's a little bit mysterious? Well, people made fun of Jeff Bezos for a while. He was just building market share. They said he'd never going to earn any money. People made fun of uh, Elon Musk, uh, that Tesla would never get anywhere. And people made fun of Netflix, spending a lot of money on original content. Turns out that these entrepreneurs have had the last laugh so far. Clearly, when you can build market share, uh, you can really get a lot of customers and they get addicted to what you're, you're, what you're producing. And ultimately, that's what happened in Netflix. People are now, I won't say addicted, but people really love it. And it's really unique. Nobody else is really competing with them at, at the scale that they're able to, to uh, produce and show uh, their, their, their content. David Rubenstein, one final question. This is quite a segue over to SoftBank and the, the latest derivative uproar that we've seen. Could SoftBank do what they did in investment management out of Abu Dhabi with the ex-Deutsche Bank crew? Could they have generated these derivative strategies with call options if they were simply registered in the United States? I think it would be tougher, and I think a lot of people in the investment world were surprised by this because that's uh, a staggering amount of money. It appears about $20 billion of, of call options. Right now, it may be profitable, but uh, it's a fairly risky thing to do. <laughs> David, let's leave it there. Thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. And this is wonderful. David Rubenstein, peer-to-peer -peer conversations. This with Reed Hastings of Netflix. Look for that uh, tonight at 9 p.m. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.